And I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I imagine maybe some of you this morning are joining us online because of the roads. Thanks for those of you that braved and uh, fought through the snow and the ice this morning to be here. And for those of you online, welcome. And I would invite you to turn as well in your Bibles uh, to 1 Thessalonians 2. Uh, This series is called Transformed, and uh, we're in week four of that series, if you're just joining us. Uh, Each week, looking at how the gospel transformed a city, how it transformed a church, and ultimately how, if we let it and we cooperate, the gospel transforms us in our lives as well. Now, two weeks ago, if you remember, uh, I was preaching on chapter one, and and we talked about kind of a vision for a transformed life. We kind of paint a picture of it, uh, kind of a life that has a new home, a new direction, and we looked at how all of that starts with God making us alive. Remember, clear, and God wakes us up from our death. But there's an aspect of that that is our participation where we welcome and cooperate with what God's doing through his word by his spirit. And after that message, a few of you, a few of our people came up to me and asked me, Matt, can you be more specific? What does that look like to actually welcome and cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in our lives? What does that look like? And kind of how do you do that? I'm not quite sure. And I remember at the time I told him, hold on, stick around, because in two weeks we're going to talk more about it. Right? So this is kind of almost part two or, or kind of a repeat of the same theme, but we're going to run a little bit deeper into it. Kind of what does it look like to let the Word of God do its work in our lives and how do we kind of position ourselves to do that? So before I give you some suggestions, I want to start with the Scriptures. So let's read First Thessalonians 2 together. First Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 13. Uh, we're going to read just four verses through verse 16 together. So here is what the word of the Lord says. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same thing that those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed even our Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in an effort to keep us from speaking the word to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. In this way, they also heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last." That's our text. Let me just pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us truth, that you would speak through me, your humble servant, and open our eyes to see. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's the question of the morning. How do you let the Word do its work in your life? How do you let the Word of God do the work of God in your life as a Christian, as someone who's coming to the Word of God? And I want to give you three attitudes or three postures that you can take, uh, if you will, almost like a position that you take underneath the Word. Uh, and all of these three are in this passage. And so I want to show you the first one right away. It's number one is to humbly receive. And these are in your bulletin if you want to write them down as well. Humbly receive the Word. Or another way to say it is to submit to the authority of the Word. To submit to the authority of the Word. 
In verse 13, you see that Paul uses two different words to describe how the Thessalonians received uh, the word. And the first one is that word in English, received. In Greek, it's the word paralambano. Uh, and I don't expect you to know what Greek is, but what that means is that you take this along with you. To receive, it means to, to take it along with you. It's the same word that's used in the Gospels when Jesus took along his disciples with him and when he traveled from town to town. So the idea of this word is not just that, oh, that's a nice idea. No, it's that you take it with you. You take it into your heart. It's not a, maybe I'll consider it later. No, it's a, I take it and receive it. Now, if the Bible was just a human word, you could take it or leave it. If you like it, keep it. If you don't like it, leave it behind. But the scripture, the Bible is not a human word. And Paul says, when you received it, you received it as the Word of God. You can't leave the Word of God. It is, its very nature demands taking it and submitting to it. It is authoritative. There's a lot of different words out there today, and how we respond to them depends on the level of authority. For example, my kids, this is a scenario that happens daily in our home, that a parent is telling their kid to get off the video games. Preach it, right, Pastor? Right? This is a, the daily struggle of parents, right? And so my wife and I will tell our boys to get off the video games, and like smart parents that we are, the, usually the first method we use is sending one of their siblings to go tell them, right? Why don't you go tell your brothers to get off the video games? And how do you think that works? Not well, because the brothers respond to their sibling with so much grace and kindness, and they say, that's a great idea. Maybe I'll think about getting around to it. I totally kid. That's not how they respond. And then the next step that usually we do is we stand at the top of the stairs and say, boys, it's time to get off. And how do you think they respond? I didn't know you were talking to me. I didn't hear you. I heard something, but I, was so, I wasn't paying attention. I'm sorry. So what ends up inevitably happening is that dad comes down the stairs. Boys! You know, the dad voice comes out, and I have one of those, right? Every parent has that serious parent voice. Boys! Get off the TV. And then they're like, okay, I might die. Here I go. I'm getting off now, right? That's the response because there's a difference in authority. When dad comes down, we know he means business, and therefore we respond. Now, why do I share that silly example? How often do we respond to the Word of God like that? Well, that's a nice idea. Maybe I'll get around to it someday, right? Or perhaps we brush it off like, well, I heard it on Sunday, but I don't know if that was really talking to me, right? But this is the Word of God. This was spoken to us by the star breather, by the nothing-to-something creator. The author of the universe, the king of the cosmos, spoke this word to us. This word is different, and it demands my response and submission. And that actually is good. You see, it's common for us in our American culture, 21st century Western minds, to think of submission to authority as negative. And that's usually how it's described. Most of the times, just like the illustration I said, well, my parents are trying to keep me from doing something I want to do, and so I have to submit negatively. 
Because in our 21st century minds, uh, anything that hinders my self-autonomy or my self-control is bad. So if anyone tells me something that I don't want to do, I have a right because I'm ultimately in control to tell them no. This is the American culture. Do yourself. Be true to yourself. You do you, boo, as they say. But really, we all are craving something that is authoritative and true. All of us are. It doesn't matter who you are. We all crave it. And our culture today is plagued by a lack of absolute truth. We, all have, we have all sorts of authorities, but no one knows what's true. It's kind of like a compass without a true north. We're all confused about which direction we're spinning around. Well, this expert says this. Well, that expert says that. Well, this is true. No, that is true. Well, I heard this is true. Well, I heard that is true. And we're driving ourselves insane. Are you with me? It's nuts. We are insane and longing for truth. The Word of God is not like these other authorities. It is absolutely true. It is our true north. There is great opportunity in submitting to and reading and hearing from this word because I know it's true. No matter how many questions I have, no matter how unsettled I am, no matter how many opinions are in my brain, no matter how many times I'm up late at night worrying and in fear, this word is one place that I can go to find absolute truth. It's not just that I have to submit to it, it's that I get to submit to it. The word is a place where we find truth for our souls. And so Jesus can say in John 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. But what does it mean to posture yourself under submission to the authority of the word? What does it mean to humbly submit to it? Well, I'll give you a couple practical applications. Number one is to position yourself to listen. Position yourself to listen. It involves intentional pursuit. For my kids to listen to my voice, they must intentionally focus on me. Kids, this is why your parents say, look at me when I'm talking to you. Because they know if you're not looking, you're not paying attention. In the same way, God's word is like that. If we're not looking at it, we're not paying attention to it. You can't submit to something that you don't know or you don't hear. One way I've heard it said is that if it's not on your schedule, it's not going to happen. If we're not intentional about pursuing the Word of God in our schedule, it won't ever happen. Nobody accidentally reads the Bible, right? Maybe many of you had New Year's resolutions. In fact, I know probably every Christian, uh, if you're a Christian in this room, uh, if you're not, thanks for being here. We're talking about Jesus. Uh, But if you are, every Christian, I would imagine, has made a New Year's resolution to read the Bible more. Can I get a nod? Yeah? Everybody's like, yeah, I really need to read the Bible more. I really want to read this or that. And probably, we're getting close to the end of January. You're probably, you probably already failed on that, haven't you? A little bit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, there's a few days in there I missed, and I'm behind on my, my Bible reading plan. I wanted to read the Bible through in 90 days, and I'm like 10 days behind. It's not going well, right? So, I hear this all the time in students and in adults and discipleship groups. Well, I really want to meet, read the Bible more. And I say, okay, when? And they're like, well, I don't know, morning or evening. No, 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 no. What time? Put it on your phone. Set an alarm. Be intentional. Because so often we're like, yeah, I really need to get around to reading it. But we never actually make intentional steps to do it. 
Now, if some of you are in this room and you're like, man, every time I read the Bible, it feels hard. It feels drudgery. I don't understand it. Here's a piece of advice I would encourage you to do. Find someone that you know that when they read the Bible, they do get stuff out of it and ask them to teach you. Ask them to show you how to read it. And for those of you that every time you read the Bible, manna falls from heaven and you get great wisdom from the Lord, why don't you share some of that bread with somebody else? Why don't you show someone else how to study the Bible? What a great way, what a great goal for 2022. I want to learn how to read the Bible. For those of you that do, I want to show someone else how to read the Bible. Wouldn't that be a great goal? I think so. Would it be a great goal? Thank you. Sheesh, am I talking to myself here? Anyways, I'm just kidding. Don't just position yourself to listen, but also in submission to the authority of the word, we, we, take, we compare every other word to the word. We compare every other little word out there to the word. We bring all other words underneath the scripture and we throw them up against the wall of scripture and whatever sticks we keep and whatever doesn't, we get rid of. Every thought, idea, suggestion, feeling taken to the word. So our culture might say, you be true to yourself or more is better or live together and who cares about sexual purity? What does God's word say? My friends might tell me, well, my spouse, if he's not making me happy, I should just leave him. Well, what does God's word say about that? My flesh says, I really want to post this and rage on someone because they're so annoying. Eh, what does God's word say? Bring that word underneath God's. Compare every other word to the word of God. Now, once you've humbly submitted, humbly received the word of God, the next posture, and these all are sequential, they really flow out of each other, is this, to actively obey. To actively obey. Or in other words, repent often. Repent often. The second word that Paul uses to describe the Thessalonians' reaction in verse 13 is not only that they received it, but that they accepted it. Or in the Greek, it's dekome, uh, which means grasping or taking something by the hand and bringing it to you. It's the same word that Paul used in Ephesians 6 when you take up the full armor of God and put it on you. So it's this idea of applying and accepting and aligning myself. It's more than just, I believe that's true, to saying, I'm going to do something about that truth. I'm not just going to hear the word, but I'm going to do it. Now, here is where we often go wrong in our approach to the Bible. There are many of us in this room that are familiar with Scripture. You're familiar with the Bible. If I quoted or if I said John 3.16 or if I said Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, you could probably quote that to me by memory. You might even be able to explain it to me or have a conversation about it. Or maybe you were here in this series and two weeks ago you heard about transformation. If I said, hey, what did we talk about two weeks ago? You might say, well, I got to check my notes real quick, but you could summarize. We're in a new home. We have a new direction. God wakes us alive, <laughs> right? And then we welcome and cooperate. Or Pastor Matt's uh, message last week that we, we're, we're sharing, we're showing and telling, we're proclaiming the gospel and we're speaking uh, in love and we're loving our neighbor as ourself. And, we, and you might be able to summarize that and explain it to me and talk about how moving it was. And my question, very honestly, is this. What are you doing about it? What are you doing? Have you taken that next step in your transformation process? Have you sought to proclaim Christ and love your neighbor well? 
Is there any evidence in our lives that we've actually accepted this word? You see, we churched folks, right? We have become very skilled at hearing the word, memorizing the word, remembering the word, feeling convicted by the word, feeling stirred by the word, raising our hands in worship as we sing the word, and yet we leave this building on Sundays and we do very little. How many sermons on Sunday have been forgotten by Monday? How many Bible studies have moved us emotionally but never volitionally in our choices? This is a problem. In our team teaching this past week, uh, a few weeks ago, we were talking about this idea, and it reminded Cheryl uh, of a song by a guy named John Guerra. And sometimes musicians and songwriters can express how we feel in such amazing poetic language. And I have it in your bulletin, but I'll throw it on the screen as well. This is from a song he wrote called Truest Praise. He said, more than a word heard clearly, more than a truth felt deeply, more than a song sung sweetly, as a crowd sings with me, repentance be my truest praise. Repentance be my truest praise. I don't want to just feel deep feelings or think deep thoughts. I'm tired of being a thinky-feely Christian. I want to be a dewy Christian. Don't think that's a word, but I made it up anyways. A repenting Christian. Thinking and feeling is absolutely important because Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and your body does. But if all you do is think and feel, but you never do, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Our faith is one of obedience and repentance. It's moving to action. We work out what God is working in through his spirit and his word. Remember what James 1 says. He shares it in such practical language. I read this a few weeks ago, but he shares this funny story illustration. He says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. That's repentance and humbly accept. That's the same word that's used here in Colossians 2 or in 1 Thessalonians 2. The word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Oh, how often we have done that. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. That's silly. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. This is the posture of active obedience. If I have this posture, then my life should be characterized by repentance. As I align myself with the word of God and I accept it into my life and grasp it and hold it, I am continuing to turn back and turn back and turn back. And so your Christian life, sorry, camera guy, I'm going to totally blow up for you, Michael. Uh, But this is what your Christian life should look like, that you're walking towards Christ. If that's the camera, I'm walking towards him and I might come off and I turn back and I might go off this way and I turn back and I turn back and I turn back and my life is continuing to turn back and turn back and turn back to Jesus. That's the Christian life. That's what your life can and should look like. Now, hear me. Hear me, hear me, hear ye, hear ye. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Are you listening? Hear me. You listening? You you with me? Okay. Hear me. 
I'm not trying to guilt trip you. Guilt is a terrible motivation to live out your faith. That's not what I'm talking about. Jesus has already paid for every one of your sins and every sin that you will ever commit in your life. When you trust in him, you are completely righteous in his sight. You do not repent of sins to save yourself or to make God happy with you. You repent of your sins because it's good for you. You repent of your sins because it gives you life. The thief came to steal and kill and destroy your life, but Jesus came to give you life. And so when you repent, you're actually turning back to life. You're getting off the road of life and you're turning back to it. You're returning to life. That's repentance. Not earning, but enjoying. It's repentance to life. So anything that God commands you is for your good. Anytime that God forbids something from us, it's because he has something better in mind. Whenever God says no, it's because he's saying yes to something better. And as we actively obey his word, we begin to believe that and live in his life. So we humbly receive and we actively obey, and this third posture flows from that, this attitude, uh, and all of these really work together. Thirdly, to firmly stand. Firmly stand on the word. Embrace foolishness. Let me clarify. Foolishness I'm talking about here is not foolishness in God's eyes, but foolishness in the world's eyes. Because the Thessalonians, when they believed the word of God, they were immediately persecuted. They were hated. They were uh, persecuted and attacked. And, and their belief put them in opposition, just like it did to Paul and just like it did to Jesus. The Jews killed Jesus, and the very same people began to attack the Thessalonians. That's what Paul is talking about in verses 14 through 16, that the culture around them became hostile to them. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, because after all, Jesus said this in John chapter 15. He said this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. The world doesn't hate you because something's wrong with you. The world hates us. The world is hostile towards the message of God and towards the things of God. And it shouldn't surprise us because the very message itself is foolishness to the world. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said it like this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He goes on in verse 21, for since the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There was a time in our American history 
in our American culture where it was actually advantageous and beneficial for you to be a member of a church. It would actually give you social capital in the community. It probably would improve your business. It was good to say that you went to such and such church and that you were a member of that church. And that's why church membership roles 50, 100 years ago were huge. Sad truth about that is the reason why Karl Marx, many of you know that name, hated Christianity is because his dad joined a church as a businessman to make money. And that's why Marx called it the opiate of the people. Because he saw his dad, who didn't believe, join a church to have social status. Is that all churches? Of course not. But there was a time where it was beneficial to be a part of the church in the community. But we are not in such a time. We have moved beyond that time. We are in an age that is increasingly secular. An age where being a Christian now is actually detrimental to your social status. For you to acknowledge your Christian faith, it's actually a disadvantage. We are looked at as foolish, outdated, and in some cases our views are seen as evil and insane. From naturalistic philosophers who say, when are you going to stop believing your fairy tales to views on human sexuality? When are you going to get on the right side of history? And here comes the temptation. Do I move where the culture moves? Or do I stand firm on God's truth and promises and ways and designs? Do I move where the culture moves because then I won't look like a fool or do I stay here? Think of Peter, the apostle Peter, when he was first called to to faith in Christ and began to follow Jesus, right? Luke chapter 5, they're out fishing. They've been fishing all night long. They've caught nothing, probably multiple hours. This was normal for fishermen to fish at night. That's the best time to fish. And so they fished, nothing caught, nothing, nothing, nothing all night. So they come to the shore in the morning, and there's this guy, Jesus, who's preaching on the shore. And he says, hey, can I use your boat for a second? Sure. So Jesus teaches, and Peter's like, this guy's strange. This is, who is this guy? Is this the Messiah? And then Jesus looks at him and says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Read, I'm a fisherman, you're a carpenter, stay in your lane, Jesus. This is silly. Morning's not even a good time to catch fish. We've already fished all night. We've done it. Nothing happened. But you know how the story went. Peter went out there. They caught more fish than their boat could handle. The boat almost sank, and his brother and his cousins had to help him. And it was amazing. And Peter, at the end of that's like, whoa. But I love Peter's response. Before it all happened, he says this, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Because you say so, I'll do it. What a great response. Jesus, I know this looks foolish. I know I'm going to look like an idiot, but because you say so, I'll do it. I know it looks foolish to hold on to biblical sexuality that male and female are created in God's image. I know it looks weird that I believe marriage is between one man and one woman for life and that I should be pure sexually until I get married. But Jesus, because you say so, I'll do it. 
I know it looks foolish to live for eternity in another world when everybody else is living for the here and now, but Jesus, because you say so, I'll do it. I know it's strange not to lash out and post abrasive and awful messages or text these things because that's what everybody else is doing. But Jesus, since you did not revile in return, but even when you were reviled, because you did that, Jesus, I'll do it. I know it looks foolish not to use cuss words when I'm at school and all my friends are doing it and I want so badly to fit in, but Jesus, because you desire my words to be pleasing, Ephesians 4.29, if you say so, I'll do it. I know it looks foolish not to dress in provocative clothing, which is what every woman's fashion is today. And I know that I'm going to look like the weirdo or the prude and everybody else will look down on me. I know that, Jesus, but since you care more about my inner beauty than my outer adornment, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 3, I will do it. I know to confess my anger issues to my wife and kids means that I'm going to look like a fool. But Jesus, since you say don't let the sun go down on your anger, I'll do it. As the children's song goes, and if you know it, you can sing it with me. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, Bible. And I hope you were shouting at home on that, right? Thank you. Last service didn't sing with me, and it was so lame, all right? The truth is, the foolishness of God is wiser than any man, and I would rather be a fool for Christ than a sage in the world's eyes. How about you? I'd rather be a fool for Christ. I'd rather us be a church that's foolish (laughs) in the world's eyes. So how can you humbly submit to the word? How can you humbly receive it? Can you be more intentional about positioning yourself to listen? Can you find someone to help you study the Bible so that you can maybe start to understand it for yourself? How can you repent to life to stop turning away and turn back to life where it's found in Christ? Maybe there's sinful habits or there's sinful neglect that you need to do things that you're not. And God, help me through your spirit to keep actively obeying your word. How can you embrace being a fool? Have you been acquiescing to the culture? Have you avoided living for Christ because of fear of losing your reputation at work or at school? There were some guys I was playing some games with recently, not Christians, and I hesitated to tell them that I was a pastor. And a buddy of mine here at Crossroads challenged me on that. It's like, hey, when are you going to tell them? Have you talked to them about Jesus? I'm like, okay. And so it came up in the conversation. They asked me, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a pastor, and crickets. And one guy immediately apologizes, like, dude, I'm so sorry for all those F-bombs, man. My bad. And I said, dude, I don't expect you to live like Christ if you don't believe in Jesus. I'm still your friend. But yeah, I live differently because I love Jesus, and I was a fool. (laughs) You know, sometimes we have to look like fools for the gospel to go. Sometimes we have to look foolish in order for Christ to be proclaimed. And if that means you or me looking foolish so that other people can hear and know the gospel of Jesus Christ, I don't know about you, but I think that's worth it. Our transformation happens when we submit to and obey and embrace God's word. And when you do that, 
Jesus' prayer begins to be fulfilled. His last prayer that he said before he died, he prayed this to his father in John 17. He said this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, transform them, make them holy, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. May we be people of the word. As the worship team comes, we're going to sing one last song for you. It's going to feel a little different. It's a brand new song. And this song is called Show Us Christ. And I love the lyrics of this song because this, the entire point of this song, because this song is Jesus, you show us through your word where life is found. You give us life. Show us Christ through the preaching of your word that every heart would, would believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because it says, where else can we go? It's just echoing Peter's words in John 6. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we turn for a better word? There's nowhere. And so we're asking you to speak to us through your word. We're going to respond and sing that together.